how it feels like you're kind of walking on this tightrope of being a black mm-hmm. person, especially in a white environment, because it's like, it's like one wrong misstep, like you don't have any level of credibility. And you can mm-hmm. work really hard to build that up and to make people respect you. But if you make one mistake, it's like a done deal, like, you know, yeah. people won't value you anymore. And that's like, <clears throat> that's something that I've always felt, but I'm so glad that I got to talk to you about it because um, you put it into words. Hello, I'm Cameron Bryant, and this is The Beverly Chat. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about college, but more specifically, what it's like to be a Black woman at a predominantly white institution. Today, I am with Iman Boyd Carroll, a student at Stanford University who is currently pursuing her master's in data journalism. She served as the editor-in-chief of Mint Magazine for four years, and she's honestly one of the coolest people ever. Thanks for joining us today. So the first question I have for you is, what is your background like? Like, what was high school like for you? Like, did you grow up in a predominantly yeah. white environment? Did you grow up in a classroom where, like, kids looked like you? Like, what was that mm-hmm. that whole process like? Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, so my upbringing has been, I think, really dynamic for a couple of reasons. Um, I technically, I kind of identify, I guess, as, like, bicoastal. Um, so I grew up in, uh, the Bay area for the first nine or so years of my life. And then I moved to Philadelphia after that. And, um, that in itself is such a differing kind of, um, black experience in terms of, um, you know, I mean, people say the West coast is diverse and I think they're, you know, to a degree are diverse ideals, but I think in terms of representation, that's not as so, and um, especially with, you know, tech dominating the Bay Area in the last 15 years, it's really changed what, you know, um, diversity looks like. Um, and, you know, hint, hint, it's not that inclusive of, you know, brown people or black people. <laughs> um, and so I think growing up, um, I had honestly, I had a bit of a kind of interesting childhood in the sense that um, I grew up with a legacy of kind of black intellectuals, which I think really framed um, my journey. Um, my uh, grandfather, Robert Floyd Jr., was the uh, first African-American flight surgeon um, in the nation. And so he, um, that wasn't actually something I knew until much later in my life. Um, and he wasn't actually recognized until he was in his 70s, which was pretty crazy. Um, and he served in his, I think he was probably in his late 20s um, when he was serving in the Korean War. And so, um, but I grew up with this culture of kind of like black intellectualism <clears throat> and I come from a very highly educated family. Um, and I think, you know, that is not necessarily um, 
a black experience. I have seen um, one that's kind of widely found and I think also widely accepted um, within, you know, I think there are many versions of what it means to be black. Um, and I think when you put um, kind of the African-American experience, you know, which is uniquely in tied to this kind of American dream-esque, like upward mobilization. Um, and it's still something that um, is unfortunately, um, you know, not as common. So I grew up in the Bay Area for the first nine years of my life. And um, I'm actually adopted, um, which is kind of an interesting dimension. Um, Unfortunately, I um, I lost both my parents when I was really young, um, and I was about four when that happened, and it really changed kind of my trajectory. Um, and also, I think it is it's you know when you grow up without your parents, I think in particular um, the biological parents there is a degree of reference for yourself that you lose growing up. Um, and I think to some degree that also really paints um, our attachments to culture. Um, we understand our culture through the lens of the people who pass our culture to us. Um, and so in that sense, it becomes, um, you know, there is a lot more active learning that has to happen in terms of how you kind of fit in. Um, even though you may identify and look as such, how do you actually fit in and contribute to the community that you're a part of? Um, so I moved to Philadelphia when I was nine um, and I lived with my adoptive parents, Colleen and Michael. And um, she, uh, my adoptive mother is actually my aunt by blood. Um, so I'm adopted within my family, but um, she's a fantastic mother who's dealt with my crazy ass. So um, <laughs> got me to where I'm at. So. Um, it was interesting. I originally, um, you know, I grew up in a pretty like educated and liberal family. I lived in Oakland for the first part of my life and then I moved to Philadelphia. And it was really interesting when I went to Philadelphia because I lived in um, an area of Philadelphia, um, like Northwest Philadelphia, which is like kind of Mount Airy. And um, Mount Airy is known to be actually one of the longest integrated neighborhoods in the country. Um, and so it has a kind of really interesting dimension of identities um, within the community. But I went to private school, um, basically over this major avenue, and that private school was in a place called Chestnut Hill, which was known to be like incredibly waspy. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, like my options, like, you know, I could have gone to public school and it would have been much cheaper. Um, but the reality was, is that like, you know, Philadelphia's public schools are not all that. And um, my education has been something that's been super valuable to me and my family. And so I went to this prep school and um, I went in seventh grade. Um, and it was, I think as a black woman in particular, like, whenever we end up in spaces that both benefit us but are not made for us um we inhabit this tension between like liberation and exploitation and um you know like it was a successful experience um 
I think by many metrics of like, you know, I went to prep school, I ended up getting into Stanford. I had a really great robust education. Um, I had a lot of resources thrown my way. Um, I got to be a two sport athlete. I played um, field hockey and lacrosse. Um, you know, I got to really indulge in the arts, which was kind of my hobby in high school and brought me to Mint and Stanford. And um, it was hard, you know, it's, um, I, I went in seventh grade and I remember like, I was this kind of like, I had come from a cooperative school, which is kind of almost Montessori-ish, but I basically was like, I was, I went from being in a school where I was one of six kids in my grade, um, basically being taught by people like in the community, um, which had its perks and also was, you know, and then I kind of, you know, I got to the point where I was ready for a little bit more. And so I transitioned to this private school and all of a sudden, you know, things like socioeconomic status and race and things that I honestly hadn't even thought about at that point became just kind of readily apparent, um, you know, and it was also all girls. So here I am, first day of seventh grade, I basically cross the road and I'm at this, um, you know, private school called Springside. And um, I was paired with a, like one of the other black girls in the grade, they had like a buddy system um, for like new admits. And um, it was really weird because she was the other kind of fair-skinned black girl and she'd been there since fourth grade and I think she was kind of supposed to be my guide but it was really weird because people instantly started kind of pitting us against one another and there was this tension between like you know I think that's you know I mean I think that's how people at a fundamental level really start learning about um I mean, start inhabiting like kind of tokenism and coming to terms with that um, phenomenon because it's like you're in a space and, you know, it seems to a degree that, um, you know, there's a limited amount of resources and just, I don't know, social allowance for people who look like you. Um, and so all of a sudden it becomes, you know, um, and I think that's one of the really toxic things about private school and being within a small community, um, you know, of black students is that like, you get painted into these echelons very quickly of how black you are. And what does that mean? Um, and I think for me, like I was told, you know, um, you know, that I wasn't black enough that, you know, I talked white that um, I remember I distinctly had a, I think friend is a generous term now, but there was a girl. <laughs> that I was close with in high school, who was a you know, rich kind of Jewish American princess, Jap, type of Bap. And um, I remember, you know, I was like, she's like, well, you're not black. And, you know, I think I had been talking about like my family and my heritage or something. And I was like, no, like I very much am. Like, you know, I'm fair skinned and my family is French Creole. So we have this kind of, you know, definitely this mixed heritage, but I'm definitely black. Um, and her response was, well, you're not poor. And I was like, oh, so like, I didn't realize that like my black experience was predicated both on my, you know, um, on my socioeconomic experience. And like, as a result of like, 
encompassing this American dream that is like proselytized to all of us, especially as Black Americans who've been so systematically disenfranchised, that that has somehow stripped me, that success in, in those realms has stripped me of my culture and of my Blackness and all these other realms. Um, and so it is a really interesting tension to inhabit. So I don't know, it was, um, it was a hard experience. And I think it was one of those things where I knew I had certain allowances in terms of, um, you know, I, I understood my position and it gave me a certain visibility that was both as beneficial as it was toxic, I think. Um, you very much, you know, I think there's this phenomenon where as many of us Black women, we begin to feel kind of like um, Superwoman or Black Atlas, um, you know, and um, in spaces like that in particular, we are both kind of the first and last thing I think a lot of people understand about Black people. Um, and so um, it's a lot of responsibility. It's really, it's really heavy at a young age. And there's still just all the natural, like, you know, kind of um, perversions of growing up, <laughs> you know, to deal with, um, and the perversions of racism and all these implicit ways. And of, I'm, you know, I mean, being a black woman um, and, you know, the intersectionality of being both who you are and being in these spaces, um, it really is a big crux to bear, um, I will say. And so, um, I think in high school, um, I guess I'll kind of close out this chapter of being like, you know, I think high school, I very much inhabit the, you know, you have to work twice as hard for half as much um, mentality. And I think the thing, you know, that's the thing, people tell you that all the time, you know, your peers are gonna tell you that, your folks are gonna tell you that. Um, but what they don't tell you is that black women get a quarter, right? <laughs> um, and so it can be really, it can be really, really, I think traumatic in a way um, to work that hard within those spaces and to feel so um, erased. Um, and there's a lot of erasure of being a black woman within high achieving space and um, any one misstep gives someone else the ability to disqualify you. Um, and I think I very much felt that, that torch um, or had to carry that torch when I was in high school. And um, I remember after I got into Stanford, um, so like long story short, I, I really wanted to go to school in California. Um, I applied to 13 or so colleges. And um, when I got into Stanford, um, I remember me and, you know, I mean, it was, it was an insane experience. First of all, like um, one of my really good friends, her name is Michaela Watson, she and I went to high school together and she was recruited to play lacrosse at Stanford and committed sophomore year. So she was like this beautiful, charismatic, like incredibly brilliant, incredibly graceful athlete, like tenacious at the same time. 
And um, she was kind of like the archetype of like what it meant to get into Stanford. And so when I got in, there was this immediate contrast of like, well, one, there was the phenomena that like we were both black women. Um, and I actually found out recently that um, it, we were the only, we are the only, uh, I think in just individuals period who have gotten into Stanford, I think in the school's 150 year history. My private school's 150 year history, um, more or less. And so um, it was amazing. And she was like very much the poster child and that was stressful for her in her own front. I'll let her attest to that. But um, they immediately started painting comparisons between us. And so, you know, she inhabited this one space of kind of being like, okay, balanced, like academic and athlete and artist. And, you know, I was a bit more like, I was not necessarily a great athlete, which I guess I already lost some of my, my points for, but, um, decent, but, um, you know, I was kind of an intellectual and highly social and was kind of more like, um, artistic and on this, like, I don't know. True. I don't know. We just didn't have it. We were just different people, period. You know, I don't even think about it to describe it, but we um, immediately, it was like, they only got into Stanford because they were black. And secondly, it was also about, um, there was this um, disdain that we were kind of met with implicitly. And I remember I'm in Philadelphia, I think it's my senior year. I'd gone out with some friends and I remember with one of, with one of my really good guy friends and um, he was also a black student. Um, and we were sitting in the car one night, um, just kind of chatting. And he told me, um, you know, he's like, they're all waiting. Um, he was talking about like kind of our peers and stuff. And he was saying, they're all waiting for us to fail. They're waiting for us to get shot out of the sky. And he was like, you know, we've been blessed with like these amazing educations and, you know, we've reached spaces that um, were not expected of us, but everyone's waiting for us to like forsake that opportunity. And um, I carried that with me for a really long time. It really, shaped the chip on my shoulder I think I came into Stanford with as a black woman which was both um so um something that like really like I think I'll probably carry that with me because at my school like there's only about like 20 black kids in my like grade I think and I feel like I've gone through like the same experience because um, I don't live in Atlanta, Atlanta. I live in like mm -hmm. a suburb of Atlanta. So it's like Milton. Mm -hmm. And there's yeah. not a lot of black people that live here. And sometimes like I've talked to like a white guy and he's been like, and he lives in Atlanta, like Atlanta, Atlanta. And yeah, he'll be like, Papa. I'm more black than you because you live in Milton or because you have more money than I do. And I'm like, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I totally understand how you feel about um, how it feels like you're kind of walking on this tightrope of being a black mm -hmm. person, especially in a white environment, because it's like, 
it's like one wrong misstep. Like you don't have any level of credibility and you can Mm -hmm. work really hard to build that up and to make people respect you. But if you make one mistake, it's like a done deal. Like, you know, people won't value you anymore. And that's like, that's something that I've always felt, but I'm so glad that I got to talk to you about it because um, you put it into words because I think it's so universal and it's like, it's unfair that they put this kind of standard on us that like one black girl has to represent the whole nation of black girls. Exactly. Exactly. We're all kind of living for the, the, I don't know, just the collective whole of our people. You know, we're all carrying the flag and it's, um, yeah, that really defined I, I reflect, you know, so I graduated in June and um, my time was cut short by COVID. Uh, so that was, <laughs> you know, a phenomenon in itself. But as I reflect on my time at Stanford, I I really think about my transition into Stanford and the kind of roles and identities I was both kind of pushed to inhabit and also the things that kind of called to me um, that, you know, kind of determined my success at Stanford. And I would say in particular, so it's actually really interesting. Like I came in super pre-med. I come from a medical family. I come from like two generations of OBGYNs and social workers and people who just work in the health sphere. um, A lot of ways, honestly, that have positively impacted and the, um, you know, black female community in particular. Um, And so I came in like diehard. I was like a bio nut in high school and was super excited to like do that and then I remember I got to Stanford and there was just so much available all of a sudden like I remember getting onto campus and I went to like the pre-med seminar and I'm like sitting in all this like this auditorium with like 300 kids and you know he's like talking about the pre-med requirements and stuff and my head is just like spinning and it's not even you know I mean he's talking about you have to do chemistry and math and, and whatever and like that's obviously the necessary thing but it's I just rem- had this realization of like I'm in this auditorium of brilliant people from all over the world and as a thinker like there's just so much to explore here that I just have not, you know, that I have not had the privilege of knowing and that my people as a whole have not had the privilege of knowing or doing. And I think, you know, I mean, medicine by, you know, no means is diverse and I'm sure they could use, you know, all the help they could get. And it ended up not being me. So, um, but I found fashion and I found journalism more recently. And I kind of had this moment where I 
within my first couple of weeks of Stanford, I was actually really struggling in one of my first classes. And um, it was becoming readily apparent that I was probably about to fail. And this is like the first time I'd ever experienced that anything like that in my life. And um, I just, I became super depressed, honestly. And that's, you know, failing at anything, I think is upsetting in itself. But I think inherently, like, I had such a deep level of shame about it, because I felt like, you know, carrying all the identities I did, and how many people were waiting for me to fail, there was such a deep shame in struggling visibly. Um, and, you know, it's, it's carrying that, um, you know, it's, it is kind of the double consciousness where like, you're both living in your experience and you're also aware of how everyone else is perceiving you. And I think those things are magnified in particular at Stanford because it is such a competitive landscape. And uh, so I ended up having a really hard time with that class and things resolved eventually. But with all that, I just was like, I'm just not interested in doing the medicine stuff anymore. I just like, you know, I was like, I'm gonna be an engineer and I'm gonna be a doctor. And then I was like, okay, like when in doubt, like do what you love. And so I ended up getting really involved with Mint and it's kind of first iteration and um, was super outspoken and got really involved. And I came in as a fashion photographer for, as a hobby. Um, I actually got into Stanford um, related to my, like my art, I guess. Um, I was actually waitlisted and that's a whole story in itself. But I, I like to say that I got off Stanford off Instagram, which is like a funny byline, but like, <laughs> Um, long story short, I got waitlisted at Stanford. I had committed to another um, well-known school, and I found out that when Stanford uh, invites you to the waitlist, they give you 600 characters to explain why you deserve to go to Stanford. Not 600 words, but 600 characters, so it's like two and a half tweets. And um, <laughs> And so I don't even remember what I followed up with, but basically like they, they like, checked out my stuff and it, um, the, I got a call about six days after I committed to this other school from a Palo Alto area code. And this guy had, you know, my admin officer, I'm calling to let you know that we saw you handed in your form. We, uh, looked you up again and we found your Instagram um in your Instagram bio was your link to your portfolio so so we checked out your art we just want to let you know that like welcome to Stanford I was like <laughs> what do you mean like um and it was like the day after prom I still had like my fake eyelashes on and like it was just like yeah it was like half asleep watching Scandal when I got the phone call. I was just like, <laughs> it was just such a mood moment. But um, it, it gave me a sense of purpose. I think being seen for what I really cared about, which was my art and the way I expressed myself. 
And when I started to really struggle at Stanford, I turned back towards that because that was the thing that brought me the most joy, um, kind of inconsequently. And so that turned into current Mint. Um, and Mint is, to talk a little bit about it, it's um, Mint is a style and culture publication uh, at Stanford. And um, I served as editor in chief of the publication for about four years and was kind of chiefly responsible for re-envisioning the publication as, um, you know, both cultural and kind of fashion commentary, but also really an identity publication that when readers would come to it um, from campus and beyond, that they would really get a sense of what were the things that the Stanford community was kind of exploring on a nuanced level. Um, and what are the kind of identity topics that we wrestle with? And I think it's, you know, translated very well into this kind of new era of like, you know, the personal is political and it always has been. But, you know, I think with Black Lives Matter and with all these current, you know, this currents of social justice, it becomes readily apparent that there is kind of no separation between church and state when it comes to um, who you are and the politics that surround you. So the publication was a really, really amazing experience. Um, we went from having like six or so editors uh, on the, or the, kind of on the board of directors. And <clears throat> in several years, it transitioned to us having like a editorial board of almost 30 people and um, you know we've had maybe uh, you know we recruit about 200 kids um, in the fall every year um, and it, you know and it was just like you know I mean I would spend sometimes like an extra 40 or 50 hours a week just working on the publication outside of my schoolwork um, and it was my love it was my passion project it was my baby and it was also my safe space. I didn't necessarily feel like Stanford made space for black students in particular to inhabit all these different dimensions. And, you know, I think for me, my black experience at Stanford was also particular in that like, you know, I wasn't necessarily coming in as kind of a first gen or low income black student. And I wasn't necessarily coming in as, um, you know, an African student. And um, there is this kind of very small niche of like more well-to-do kind of African-American folk at Stanford. Cause I think Stanford pop tops is like Mm, there's maybe about 500 or so undergrad black students and yeah Stanford lumps us all together as black students the reality is is that a lot of those students are um from you know in terms of socioeconomic status either from uh kind of recruited for through the kind of fly programs or um are the result of kind of this like, you know, more African moneyed community. And so when you actually look at how many African American students Stanford is admitting, 
the number is incredibly, incredibly small. And so the trickle down effect is as a result, Stanford is actually not really servicing or giving us any sort of reparations um, and institutionally. Um, and so, yeah, I inhabited, I think that very tiny sliver between all of that, which was an interesting tightrope to walk, but I wanted to paint like dimension into the black experience. I think there's a lot of gatekeeping, I think, within the black experience at Stanford about who is black and how does black look and sound um, within that microcosm. And I didn't necessarily fit into that. Um, and I think for me, doing the magazine was really about creating a refuge for people to express some of the most kind of both personal and political struggles um, within their identities and to do so in beautiful ways and to do so um, with care and delicate, you know, kind of a, a certain um, delicateness um, that we don't really get at Stanford. Um, so I, I feel really grateful for that opportunity. One thing that I thought was really interesting that you said was about like how, um, how like in predominantly white environments, people try and pin like two black girls against each other. And mm -hmm. like, you see it everywhere. You don't just see it like in, in schools, you see it in media. Like, you know, when there's two black female rappers, like people are constantly yeah. trying to like put them against each other. And it's so sad that that's something that we have to face on like a, in every pathway of like life. Mm -hmm. But it's so great that like, you know, there's people like you who are willing to put things together that encourage us to work together, so. I reflect on my Stanford experience, I think relatively positively, but I think there is, um, you know, I think being a black woman in particular, like the truths of the world are readily apparent. There's a psychognitive dissonance in that you have seemingly all the protections um, and the kind of the status symbols of, you know, and the esteem, right? Kind of externally fashioned. Um, and despite all of that, there's still a level to which, you know, your peace and your sexuality and your citizenship um, is not protected as a black woman. That cognitive dissonance is a really delicate thing to inhabit at a place like Stanford because I think for me like I became you know I think relatively respected for my work and had a lot of visibility as a result of the publication and was kind of um but I was also uniquely always tied to my labor which was a really hard thing because all of a sudden you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a person too. I had struggles, you know, I had breakups and bad boyfriends and mental health and, um, you know, academic struggles. And all of that stuff kind of just gets compounded um, and people are not so much, there's a very distinct moment in which I realized that people were not really gonna give me the same grace um, for my humanity. Um, as they would my labor and the products of my labor.
and that is a very hard realization to come to and it takes a lot of self-love um it's just kind of like you know and just a lot of self-responsibility to come out of a place like stanford whole as a black woman um you know there's that nina simone quote which i'm surely gonna butcher but it's like you know you can give people take everything you got you know as much as you're willing to give um and i butchered that terribly but the point is is like i think our position as black women especially in white spaces has been so tied to um us keeping the machine going you know and it doesn't give us a lot of grace and to to just be you know quite simply to just be and so i think the moments in which stanford really was um the most amazing for me and the most you know i reflect on so fondly it was like the moments in which i really felt seen you know for what i did and what i cared about and who i was and it didn't mean everyone liked me and it didn't mean that i was you know always by the respected by the people who you know were important and i do air quotes for that but um you know i left i left with my truth and i was able to you know i think also it's a really really revolutionary thing and it's a revolutionary act nowadays to one tell the truth to create environments for the truth and three lean into that truth <clears throat> and find purpose or beauty within it when it is incredibly painful and i think our nation is reconciling all of those things right now and um there is a big question right now of uh the world could collectively change really rapidly if we all decided to take responsibility for ourselves um and i think as black women we're forced to do that kind of better genesis you know um and we learned the hard way unfortunately through a lot of you know um not people not necessarily having our best interest at heart um even though when they say it might say otherwise and so um i've found a lot of peace in it in speaking my truth and you know stanford and all that is great but um I was who I was before I went to Stanford and I, you know, will still be myself when I leave Stanford and um it's really important to come home to yourself in that sense. Um regardless of how fancy, you know, that piece of paper is that hangs on your wall. And so and you can do that in beautiful ways. So and conversations like these are so important um for black women to just share our knowledge you know we're all providing testimony um 
to these experiences that we feel very alone in or that are very anecdotal. And the reality is, is like, you know, despite the label of blackness that you want to inhabit, like, you know, we're all universalists. So we all, we all get this, you know, um, to our different degrees. But um, I just hope that in these moments that, you know, as black women, we can really come together again and uh, really find strength within celebrating our individuality kind of within um, within our community as well. So that's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. I have like literally nothing else to say. <laughs> So that's the end of this Beverly chat. Thank you so, so much to Iman Floyd Carroll for being a part of this episode. I had such an amazing time talking to her. She was such a cool and interesting guest. And thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you guys all have a wonderful day and I'll see you at the next Beverly chat. If you want more House Beverly information or more content on all things Beverly, make sure that you go to www.housebeverly.com. See you soon. Thanks.